Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. Melissa Weedart Phillips. Can you tell me the time, please? Iris automatically glanced down at her watch. A blue enamel fish swam behind the numbers, showing her it was late morning. She looked up and paused for a moment, taking in the young woman who had sat down next to her, all brown curls and suntan, before she managed to answer. English? the woman inquired with a smile. Yes, Iris answered pushing strands of her red hair away that had been caught in the light breeze. Italian? Yes, the woman answered. Are you here in Italy for long? No, just twenty-four hours. I'm catching a ferry tomorrow morning to Greece. And you? I'm just in town for a night. I'm here from Milan for work. Say, the woman began, turning to face Iris with an earnest look. Do you want to spend the day together? and then never see each other again. Iris drew in a quick breath, taken off guard, but also suddenly filled with desire. Why shouldn't she spend the day with a stranger? Yes, okay. I'm Iris. Everyone calls me Trinket, the woman answered, lifting a laden silver charm bracelet and shaking it. The two of them wandered around the city, visiting grand buildings with frescoes and stained glass, meandering down narrow alleys, washing lines strung across the street above their heads, the air hot and heady with the scent of red bougainvillea. Iris's senses were overwhelmed, but she still managed to pause and snap a Polaroid of it all, with Trinket leaning against a stone wall, her elegant white dress contrasting with the yellow and pink painted houses, eyes hidden behind dark glasses. Then Trinket drove them in her tiny red car up into the hills, stopping when the road, which had become a track, ran out, pulling Iris after her. Iris frowned slightly, but she trusted Trinket, and wanted to find out where they were going, feeling the warmth of Trinket's hand in hers. Soon a little building came into sight, a white sheet strung out like an awning above chairs and a table. A man with greying hair appeared, and Trinket ordered in rapid Italian mostly too quick for Iris to follow. As they sat at the table, Trinket reached out and lazily trailed her fingers over Iris's arm where it rested on the paper tablecloth, sending sparks of electricity running through her veins. When the food came, it was wine and pizza covered only in herbs, salt and oil. Cucina povera, Trinket explained, simple and perfect. Tell me more why people call you Trinket. Iris asked, as she sipped wine, leaning back in her chair, 
"'I'm a journalist,' Trinket answered. "'I have a charm for every major story I've done.' "'You must be good,' Iris said, staring at the full bracelet. "'Each reminds me of a part of a story, or the place or person it was about.' Iris tentatively reached out and touched the charms with her fingertips, seeing a plane, a shoe, a book, a building, and for some reason a duck. She looked up and met Trinket's gaze, and just stared for a moment, lost in her rich brown eyes. Trinket returned her smile. "'It's siesta time,' she said. "'I know a place where we can rest, near a pool.' Iris was surprised when Trinket stopped the car near some trees and pulled her down a steep slope, coming to a natural pool, a small trickle of water running down into it over large rocks. Iris offered Trinket her jacket to lie on in the brown grass and dry earth. "'To save your dress,' she insisted. "'Only if you'll share it with me,' Trinket said, pulling Iris down next to her. Iris was aware of how close their faces were, Trinket's curls tickling her cheek, Trinket's arm wrapped around her. Everything was heightened, the rough ground against her bare legs below her shorts, the scent of scorched earth and fresh moving water, the symphony of cicadas, a cacophony around them. She gazed at Trinket's closed eyelids, dappled light covering her face where it slipped between leafy branches, her lips dark and rich. It took Iris much longer to fall asleep. "'Come on!' Iris opened her eyes and sat up, looking around wildly for a moment, seeing Trinket's white dress folded next to her, weighed by shoes. Then she spotted Trinket, or at least her head and shoulders, as she trod water in the pool. "'It's really refreshing,' Trinket called. "'But what if someone comes?' Iris asked, glancing around at the green bushes and dancing yellow flowers." There's no one around, and you'll be in your underwear anyway. Come on, it's fun. Iris hesitated a moment longer, then slipped out of her shorts and t-shirt and joined Trinket, crying out for a moment as her sun-filled skin touched the cooling waters. Once she was used to it, Trinket came over, then suddenly splashed at her. Iris shrieked, which turned into a laugh as she splashed back. After a little while, she climbed out, Trinket following. Iris glanced at the sky, seeing the sun was lower, went to look at her watch, and found it was missing. She clutched her wrist, turning, feeling devastated. My watch! I was wearing it in the pool! It's gone! Trinket took one look at her stricken face, and dived back into the water. Iris rushed over, frightened as Trinket began to dive down below the surface. "'Just leave it, please,' she begged as Trinket came back up for air. Trinket ignored her, and continued looking for a short time, but reluctantly she tired and climbed back out, coming to dry in the sun with Iris. "'At least you'll always know where it is,' Trinket pointed out, and Iris found herself laughing, even though she felt devastated. The drive back seemed longer, and Iris found her gaze wandering to Trinket who looked steadily forward as they wove between trees and crossed bridges over large expanses of water. The fabric of her white dress, Iris noticed, had turned slightly see-through with lingering water. Trinket took them to a city at the edge of the sea. When they arrived, the sun was setting, 
the sky a flurry of purples and golds, the sea below still vivid blue and turquoise. They walked along the seafront, shops still open, selling this and that for the slow-moving tourists. Iris did not count herself among them, Trinket having drawn Iris into her world, behind the curtain to the real Italy. They ate a light supper, then wandered through the streets, the night air warm on their bare skin, until they came across a club, noise and light spilling out through the doorway. Inside, coloured light danced, throwing the gathering into light and shadow, turning their skin red, then blue. Iris allowed herself to be drawn into the throng, Trinket's arms wrapping around her for a moment, the two of them swaying together, bodies pressed close in the mass, until a faster song came on, and they broke apart, throwing themselves around, letting the music take hold of their bodies, moving them to its will. It was wild and beautiful, freeing and exhilarating, a much-loved rock song filled Iris's senses, deafening her to all else, but she could see Trinket's lips moving, singing along, her voice lost in the music. When the hour had grown so late it was early, the two of them stumbled from the club into the fresh air, heady with music and dance. As they walked along the mostly silent streets, Iris slipped her hand into Trinket's, feeling the other woman return her gesture, with a quick squeeze of recognition. They walked until they reached a large stone bridge, arching over a river below, the water black and fathomless, reflecting the myriad different coloured city lights in its inkiness. Trinket pulled her over to the balustrade and perched on it, looking over. The stone was cold to Iris's touch, but she sat on it next to Trinket, then after a moment, feeling emboldened, she swung herself over it to the deep ledge on the far side, sliding down, sitting, her legs dangling over the dark water. "'You seem to be growing bolder,' Trinket commented a moment later, joining her. "'You make me feel bold,' Iris replied, turning to her, seeing Trinket's face half-lit in the glow of street lights. "'I don't want today to be it.' Her words hung in the air between them. But it spoils the magic, Trinket said quietly. I don't want today to be it, Iris repeated softly. She had not intended to say these words, but now she had, she knew them to be true. She leaned over slowly, hesitantly, closing her eyes, too frightened to hope, and found Trinket's lips waiting for her. Trinket pulled her in, filling Iris's senses her soft jasmine perfume intoxicating. Everything about Trinket enveloped her, drawing her in, blocking out the rest of the world, until she was forced to pull back, gasping. She tried to catch her breath, and saw Trinket was smiling, her eyes bright with happiness. They carefully climbed back over the balustrade, and made their way to the deserted sands, soft and white beneath their now bare feet. They danced together in the moonlight, arms wrapped around each other, this time much slower than the club. Eventually, Trinket seemed to grow tired, and she sank down to the sand, pulling Iris after her, their lips meeting again in passionate kisses, until they fell asleep in each other's arms as dawn began to creep upon them. When Iris woke up, it took her a second to realise where she was, 
but she looked over and saw Trinket asleep next to her in the sand, Iris's coat wrapped protectively around Trinket's sleeping body. Iris stared at her for a long moment, reluctant to wake her sleeping angel. But the sun was rising, and their time was stolen. Hi, Trinket said, blinking heavily lashed eyes and smiling up at her. It must be nearly time for my ferry, Iris said, sadness tinging her tone. I'll go and find us some breakfast then, Trinket said, sitting up. Iris hurried to her hotel to collect her things, then rushed back to join Trinket at the seafront, gratefully taking the warm roll offered her. Fresh from the bakery, Trinket said, and I have something else for you. Iris turned inquisitively, her mouth full of warm bread, and saw Trinket holding out a charm bracelet like her own. She took the silver chain with shaking hands, and looked at the flower, drop of water, record, camera and star. It's beautiful, she breathed. Trinket took it gently and fastened it around Iris's wrist. Iris stared at it, lost for words, then reached into her handbag and drew out the collection of Polaroids she had taken. The street of flowers with Trinket leaning against the wall, wild hillside, the restaurant, the pool, Trinket's head peering out, the little red car, a blur of coloured lights, the bridge bright and shadowed by the flash, the sandy beach coloured by the rising sun. Take any. Trinket reached out and took one of Iris, sprawled on the grass, hair damp, eyes closed in dappled sunlight. In the moment, unaware of Trinket taking it. This one. Trinket drove her to the ferry. Iris stood next to the car and pulled Trinket in for a passionate kiss, filled with sadness and longing, not caring who saw. Iris took her things and began to move with a cue to board the ferry on foot, Trinket keeping pace with her as far as she could, until they reached the walkway which bridged the gap between the harbour and ship. Iris held onto Trinket's hand for as long as possible, her arm reaching out across the water, until her fingers were forced to slip from Trinket's. She turned away, unable to even look back, feeling the press of boarding passengers around her, nearly inside the dark hull of the ship. Iris! She swung round, to see Trinket at the water's edge. Meet me at our bench in one year's time, Trinket shouted at her. Her chest was filling with warmth, and she was running, pushing past her fellow disgruntled passengers. She flung her arms around Trinket, and kissed her, this time with pure joy. Then she was turning, ignoring the glances as she pushed back to her abandoned bags. She walked backwards, shouting to Trinket, I will! Vedrò quello che non c'è, 
quello che non c'è che non so di me You're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. That was a story called Trinket by Melissa Widat Phillips. So now we're going to hear the second part of Sonic Stops by Rosie and Verity of Better Songs Productions. These pieces were commissioned by Music Leeds as part of their Launchpad programme alongside Abbey House Museum. And the uh, pieces, you can hear them actually in the exhibition Sounds of Our City, which is uh, in Abbey House Museum. You can go there now in person and see the exhibition and listen, of course. Music Leeds very, uh, very generously gave us permission to, to use, to play these two lovely pieces of audio as part of... Uh, love the words so they take the form of bus rides through the city we heard west to east two weeks ago now we have south to north following the story of leeds music music in leeds over the centuries a fantastic idea and uh, yeah here we go sonic stops part two This is where we're from. Where we're from. Where we're from. This is who we this are. Is who we are. We are. We're still here as wind whips white powder across aborted roads till our eyes sting. It sticks in the throat like surrender from the slumped Union man, red tie flapping in the coordinated attack, from the dust and the gale force stink of chicken dung someone dumped last night to keep the numbers down. They already cut the cables on number one, said the shaft was unsafe, couldn't leave it, oh lordy no, health and safety gone now but it was safe enough until the last three weeks to send working men down to keep the lights on. Now the brass band plays abide with me as the handmade banner fights the wind. This is where we're from. This is who we are. We're still here, though they're determined to wipe us out. 
Not just because it's a pit, not because it's coal, not because it's where our past got its power, but because we represent a vision, a whole different world. No wonder we're bitter with chasers of ashes in Poundland bought off with knock-off bags. It's a bit late to say don't be political in top-down class warfare where that black stuff is taxed to death so they can sob lies at her funeral. As the band plays Jerusalem, we will not cease from mental fight nor bow to privileged devils who sell us endless war and scare us with peace and jeer at our hopes after all we've gained through struggles. This is where we're from. This is who we are. And we're still here. Tabla player living in Leeds. The tabla is a North Indian classical drum. The instrument is actually made up of two separate drums, one which makes a higher treble sound and the other, the larger of the two drums, which makes a deeper bass sound. began my learning from the age of four and have been teaching for the last decade in Beeston at the GNNSJ Gurdwara, the Sikh temple, and people from all faiths and all backgrounds are welcome to come and participate.
There is a really strong community for Indian classical music in Leeds, a lot of which began with projects that were run at the Leeds College of Music and now is called Leeds Conservatoire and were led by the famous sitar maestro Ustad Dharmbir Singh Ji. Ustadji was instrumental in bringing many Indian classical musicians from across the world to come to Leeds to settle and to also teach. And today, Leeds is regarded globally as a hub for this style of music. Dave Beer, um, promoter of Back to Basics. Back to basics. <laughs> We've been running 
for 28 years, which is now uh, recognised by Guinness as the uh, longest running club night in Europe. For the first 20 years, we were running every Saturday in different venues across the city, um, but always in Leeds. Uh, we refused to um, do it anywhere else because uh, home is where the heart is, they say. Leeds was known as Gotham City back then. It was like, uh, we didn't like to be known as Goths, but um, that was the term that the music press gave us. But there was a lot of uh, ghostly looking figures wandering around Leeds City Centre back in the mid 80s. But it was a very different city back then, you know, until the 90s really. We started back to basics because there was nothing in the city, you know, or in fact, nothing this side of Manchester or Nottingham that did the kind of music that we were listening to then. The rave scene had got a little bit jaded and was a little bit out of control, to be honest. So it was time to go back into nightclubs, but you know, after, after disco and all that period, like, there was a lot of discos and nightclubs that were not, didn't, they were empty. So we, uh, we approached um, a place at the bottom of Bigot called uh, Rock, was it Rock Shots? Yeah, Rock Shots and Bananas, um, which is a gay club uh, at the time, and just for the display of where the new penny is. But it was purposely we did it there because uh, we knew that that would keep an element out, like the football hooligan element. And we started on one floor, but it just took off. Firstly, we had 80 people on the top floor. The next week, we had it doubled again. We had like, you know, um, 160, and then the week after it was 320, and you know, 640. And we, we, before we knew it, we had all three floors of the of the club on a Saturday night, and people, thousands of people coming. And uh, we were looking out about a thousand people at a time that were queuing up. And, you know, the, all the big it was blocked off. There's um, film footage of. That the, you know, just total mayhem, you know, trying to get into the club. Not, you know, the, the authorities and the police wondered what on earth was going on there, you know. But it was just um, probably the most desired place to be at one point for like maybe two years. At that time, we had to close the club at two o'clock. So then we'd go on to do after parties at places. And then we had the disco granny, Lorna Cohen, um, she was on the council. I don't know what, what, how she came about the, realising the fact that if um, we didn't serve alcohol in the, in the dance clubs, that we could stay open as long as we liked, you know, and it was like, so the next thing we know, we were the first, one of the leading cities to start looking at, you know, being more European. So, you know, having a 24-hour lead, she was huge planned for. At one point there was like, in all the music magazines, the top, um, you know, five clubs were in Leeds, you know, and so on a Saturday night you had Back to Basics, you had Hard Times, you had Vague, you had uh, Orbit, we had uh, Ark, people were just travelling to Leeds, so 
nightlife economy had become a very big part of the city, which brought students, you know, which brought income, which brought hotels, which brought retail. The council recognised, you know, the input that I'd had on the city and uh, they call me uh, an honorary son now. My name's John Keenan, I'm a promoter. I was the uh, landlord promoter at Duchess from 1988 to 1991. It meant something to everybody, you know, whatever kind of music you were into, uh, uh, I put it on at the Duchess. But I always tried to pick uh, you know, a decent quality and try to spot the ones that are about to make it. Over that time, I brought through these many emerging bands who were later to fill stadiums from the police to U2, from the Stranglers to the B-52s, but none of those shows caused more interest than a package I promoted almost 32 years ago. Wednesday 25th of October 1989, I brought to the Duchess a lineup headlining Seattle-based metal grunge band on the sub-pop label called TAD, and in the middle spot, another Seattle band, also signed to sub-pop, going by the name of Nirvana. My recollection of the performance that night was that they were a bit shambolic, and uh, Kurt seemed to be slightly, yeah, peed off uh, with it all. At the end of the set, they stormed off stage, Kurt swung his guitar and battered an expensive Sennheiser drum mic. Uh, our Geordie sound guy, Jeff Bell, uh, jumped up from behind his desk and went to pin Kurt against the wall. Uh, Look what you've done to my mic, man. Uh, the manager Rustov pulled Jeff away and placated him. Above the pub, I had a room where the bands could stay. I kept a few duvets in the cupboard and a few mattresses on the floor. Uh, there was also an old white leather couch, which I understand was backed by Kurt. Uh, the following morning, the tour manager, true to his word, brought in a new Sennheiser mic. He also brought an electric guitar from Big Deal, the second-hand shop a few doors down from the Dodgers. He said... Uh, that it was Kurt's thing to do up cheap guitars and smash them during the act. Kind of a, an expensive attention grabber, but it paid off in, in the end. Yeah. 
you know, it's basically the essence of the Duchess. It was uh, about the programming. Otherwise, it would have been just another pub with pub bands. And uh, I, I like to think that I uh, brightened it up a bit and brought some uh, decent music to Leeds.
Leeds um, and I'm a singer, songwriter and performer. Um, I've been performing for nearly 40 years now, um, most of that time with my sister Paulette who we were a duet and we were called Royal Blood. And my dad was one of the um, first steel pan teachers to teach steel pan in Leeds and across the whole country. So he was a, an innovator, my dad was. So bringing something like an art like steel pan, teaching it to everyone was quite a unique thing. I felt really privileged that that was my dad who did that. Me and my sister were more into reggae. The love we had for it was more around learning because we weren't we, we weren't learning about our history in school at the time. So through the music, it was teaching us about um, Africa, it was telling us about the Caribbean, telling us about places we didn't, didn't have any connection with because we were born in the UK. So bringing that feeling, that music, that knowledge was really important for young, I suppose, young Caribbean people at that time. We were constantly going backwards and forwards to London to work with different artists and to do our own thing. So we produced our, our own album, very first album called Royal Blood. That was really a great achievement for us and a great achievement for our community in Leeds. You know, so it just kind of gave us a boost. We became local celebrities at the time and I think it was it was a new thing for the community because there wasn't many of us getting out there and doing things and coming back and saying, look what you can achieve, you know, look, look what's out there, the world is your oyster. So for us that was a, you know, kind of a, a creative um, opportunity we took, but it, out of it it gave us such joy, such pleasure and hopefully inspired lots and lots of people. Brits and mingle with sort of the Spice Girls, you know, when the Spice Girls were doing in the heyday. And it was such a great opportunity for two little Leeds girls who, you know, just fresh out of school, but having these great opportunities because of our music, because of our craft. And reggae was the music that gave us that platform, you know, so I celebrate it all the time and I hope in the future it is a music that carries on, you know, that people don't forget that reggae music has, it has a story to tell, it has something to say. guitarist uh, and I teach improvisation and jazz guitar. Yes, 
Seven Arts. Uh, it's a great little place. I particularly like it because uh, it's a small theatre venue, and I think that certain kinds of jazz gigs go really well in small theatre venues. We used to play at a place called the Green Room in Manchester. It was the same. Uh, so you've got actually you've got rake seating, and you have a kind of sense of occasion. You've got nice lighting. You've got a decent backdrop. It's it kind of focuses people's uh, attention on the music. John and I have played there on lots of occasions. Um, the last uh, one we played at actually was uh, as a support to the Patchwork Jazz Orchestra, which is an amazing band, and we did our originals. Um, and again, it was uh, it was so quiet you could hear a pin drop, which is really unusual in a jazz gig. Seven Arts have been putting music on for a long time. Um, Steve Crocker and Lee's Jazz, or Jazz Lee's, they call it, don't they? I've been putting uh, music on there, and it's uh, I think it's a really great venue. Uh, and I think uh, I'm hoping that it'll open up soon and we can all start to uh, go back and listen to some great music. Hi, I'm Jesse Bannister, saxophonist and composer based in Leeds. I've been in Leeds since 1991, come here to learn and then ended up staying and becoming a Indian classical saxophonist, a jazz saxophonist, as well as a teacher at Leeds College of Music. period of time there wasn't really a nice venue to play gigs really so when Seven Arts came it was really great for musicians because again we could come together and create music in a really local friendly atmosphere.
wanted to tour play out with Zoe Roman and Seb Rochford and Kenny Higgins, I decided that Seven Arts was the perfect venue to put a concert on. So I got in touch um, with Leeds Jazz and we did a collaboration with SAR UK as well, who use Seven Arts a lot. And so it was a really nice atmosphere because you had this lovely audience from the jazz community and the indie music community coming together. I've used Seven Arts myself personally for four other projects. Um, my own personal projects, working as a composer with choirs and, and dancers and filmographers. So it's a really lovely space to be able to, to share our work with. And um, long may it be resurrected and continue. on Leeds University Union stage crew in 1980 and through that I worked gigs like the Rolling Stones in Randay Park, Bruce Springsteen in Randay Park and then later on the Love Parade in Randay Park. Angel. Angel. Andy Kershaw who was the NSEC at the time got a phone call in the office saying we need your stage crew over at Randay for the Stones gig Andy. First time anybody had done a gig there. It was the first time anybody had done a gig with a stage that big anywhere, uh, and probably a gig that big, a, a one-off, not a festival anywhere. Um, so it, it was quite, quite exciting. One of the first jobs we did was to attach the thin sheets of ply with little bits of bent wire to the scaffolding that formed the perimeter fence. Um, it was far from secure. <laughs> Anyone could rip a panel down easily if they wanted to, and quite a lot of people did. One of the big efforts was into the uh, dressing room complex backstage, and it had all sorts of things, including a, a pond and stream and waterfall with live koi carp in it. Because um, obviously you need that in a dressing room. Fence at the bottom of Hill 60, there was an insistence by the Rolling Stones management that it be painted green 
and they didn't like the shade of green we painted it, so we had to keep painting it different shades of green. It's spine tingling, it's, it raises goosebumps, and thinking about it raises goosebumps. It, it's just such a buzz. And, and then, yeah, when each band hits the stage and you get the audience reaction, it's a human emotion that's really, really difficult to quantify. To say you have to be there is a bit of a cliche, but you, you kind of did. The layout is ideal for it because you've, you've got the cricket pitch, which forms the um, bowl, the, the sort of stalls, if you will. But then you've got Hill 60, which is semi-tiered and means that people can see a lot better than you would normally in that kind of thing and then behind the cricket pitch of course it slopes up as well so it does feel a bit more of a party than some of the other ones it's very bittersweet as well for me around hay in a way because i worked at round hay park on the bruce springsteen gig from it was a park to it was a park with no sign of a gig at either end of it. As a result of that, I couldn't take up another offer, um, which wasn't really an offer. I was being asked and was asked by several people uh, if I would like to work the lighting crew for a little gig in Wembley on the uh, following weekend, which was Live Aid. I earned so much on the Bruce Springsteen gig, I was able to pay my share of the deposit on our first house. I couldn't afford not to take that work to go down to London to work for nothing. And um, if you've watched Bohemian Rhapsody, there's a line in it that um, Rami Malek, as, as Freddie Mercury, says to the rest of the band. All I know is that if we don't do our part in that gig, we will regret it for the rest of our lives. And that's the bitter side. <laughs> um, the sweet side is it did provide the memories and it did pay the deposit for my first house. not just been live music of course there, there was the uh, the love parade which is the biggest event that's ever happened there 250,000 people have got a story about that one at least
I'm Stella and I like dogs. Hi, I'm Francesca and I like buying stuff for other people. Hi, I'm Isla and I like flowers. When I was six years old, I broke my leg. I think she just gave us a sheet of paper and like showed us it and was like, we go into Ed Sheeran. I used to keep listening to his songs over and over, so I got really excited. When you say 80,000 people, I honestly wouldn't think that's a lot of people compared to how many people are on the earth. But when you see how many people that is, it's just a lot. I've not seen the fields. At first there were some other people that come on and then I think it was uh, the last person that came on was Ed. I'm on my way Driving at night Down the country lane Singing to tiny dancers I think he started off with a song and then after the song, I think he said hi to everyone and what he was going to do. Yeah, and at one point, everyone just started singing all together. I was buzzing. I was really excited. And I think we're all jumping up and down to try and see him before <laughs> he came on. Yeah. I don't think it went that late, but nine-year-old me thought that it was really, really late. <laughs> Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words, from ELFM. And I'm